Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about ancient Israelite religion, as found in the Bible. What does the Bible tell us the Israelites believed, and how did they process thoughts about religion? When approaching the Bible, one of the best things we could do is try to look at the Bible as a form of advocacy. The Bible is advocating the true God, Yahweh, over against alternatives for ancient Israel. Walter Brueggemann, in his magnum opus, Theology of the Old Testament, this is actually his subtitle to that book, Testimony, Dispute, and Advocacy. And he writes in that book, It is clear that Israel's testimony is intended to generate an accepted, normative, narrative, construal of reality in which the members of Israel can live. It is readily imaginable that other testimonies were always available in Israel, and other construals of reality, some of it which were powerful and attractive, some of which were no doubt more common sense and more readily championed by the dominant legitimating power. Thus Israel's testimony, as revelation that becomes canon, always has an edge of advocacy and urgency to it. For its members can, in any given circumstance, fall out of the life world generated by this rhetoric. There is no reason to imagine that ancient Israel lacked the same passions and commitments known in our contemporary communities concerning the same testimony. So this quote is really important, and this tells us how to read the Bible. The Bible is not written just to be some sort of, you know, quasi-spiritual guide that kind of leads us towards the right direction, but you have to read it with some sort of spiritual sense and these these Calvinist goggles. The Calvinists think that the Bible is a bunch of goggly gook and it's a bunch of baby talk and you have to interpret it in light of these overriding metaphysical principles. That's just not how the Bible is written. The Bible is written to advocate to Israel who the true God was and it advocates in very strong language and strong concepts. If you try to dilute that by saying that it's not a strong advocacy of who the true God is, of who Yahweh is, you're undoing the entire purpose of what this is trying to teach Israel. So Israel is continually under attack by false gods, by people claiming to follow Yahweh and presenting a false picture of Yahweh. There's even an atheistic element, this element that discounts Yahweh as an agent that can act and can do things and can see things. And there's a very atheistic undertones to this sort of thought. And th these sort of thoughts dominated in Israel, and they were legitimate positions that Israelites could hold and then still lead normal lives. And so the entire Bible is written to take Israel from these false gods, from these false pictures of Yahweh, and from these false pictures of uh, atheistic worldview, and bring them to the true God. So it does not work to say that the Bible is just using anthropomorphisms to describe God, and the Bible should not be taken at face value, and there's some sort of spiritual meaning under the text. No, the text is written in a form of advocacy to tell a true picture of what it means to follow the real God and who he is, versus following fake pictures of that God. I mean, what's the difference between a fake picture of Yahweh and an anthropomorphic picture of Yahweh? And how do you distinguish the two? And why is a false God bad and Yahweh the true God? 
if all these attributes are just anthropomorphisms, couldn't the anthropomorphisms for the false gods also be pictures of Yahweh? You don't get any sort of coherence in this belief that the whole Bible is written in this anthropomorphic language, which then needs to be discounted in favor of metaphysics, because it doesn't work on so many levels. It doesn't tell us why the Yahweh that's described in the Bible needs to be worshipped over and above these other gods who would have equal claims to be anthropomorphic depictions of the ultimate deity. The authors of the Bible care very deeply about depicting who God is so that he can be worshipped as God, and we should not take that text lightly. So one of the things that I try to do when I read the Bible is I try to recreate the arguments of the biblical opponents from the words of the writers of the Bible. The writers of the Bible are addressing critics, people who don't agree with them, people presenting alternative realities, and they're forming arguments against these people. So it's very important to know who these people are and what they are advocating. So I will collect and I will bookmark texts in which the Bible writers exclaim the ignorance of various people in their society and talk about the bad things that they say or that they believe. And that gives us a picture of what normative religion was in ancient Israel. And then understanding the biblical arguments against these positions will teach us a lot about the theology of the Bible. So let's say in modern society you just walked up to a Calvinist and said, you know, I don't think that God sees everything. You don't have to be an open theist to say that. Say that you're like an atheist or you're agnostic. You just walk up to a Calvinist and say, God doesn't see everything. You know, there's there's no evidence that God's all-seeing. What would a Calvinist respond to that with? How would they answer that? They would start going into metaphysics. They would go straight to metaphysics and talk about, you know, his self-existence. They'd talk about his omniscience. And they'd say, basically, that he has to be omniscient to be God. They'd go into the metaphysical arguments. The Bible authors, the biblical authors, they just do not argue like that. The people in Israel often would claim, God doesn't know what we are doing. And the biblical authors, in response, say, yeah, he does. And he's going to judge you guys. The judgment's not already happened. The judgment's not all ongoing. God's not, like, controlling everything. But the claim was, there is going to be a future judgment because your actions are being seen and they are being recorded. So were the biblical authors, were they Calvinists? No. They don't argue like Calvinists. They don't think like Calvinists. They don't go into these rants about metaphysics on the attributes that God must have to be God. They don't even counter arguments that God doesn't know things. They don't counter it with omniscience of all future and past events. They just counter it with God's watching what you're doing. That's their serious counter. These guys are not Calvinists, and Calvinists obsess about this. Not not just Calvinists, you know, Arminians, and a lot of modern Christians. They obsess about these attributes, these attributes that have ample opportunity to be explained by the biblical authors and just aren't because they're just not a part of Israel's normal theological ideas. They're just not even considered. They're, they're not part of the theological spectrum that's available in ancient Israel. The idea is that God is watching everyone. God's knowledge is mechanistic. God doesn't have just in this inherent knowledge. 
that uh, the metaphysics speculates that just God has inherent knowledge of everything and forces him to just know everything without any mechanism to get that knowledge to him. But mechanistic knowledge is like, I watch a TV show, so then I know that TV show. And God's knowledge in the Bible is presented mechanistically. So there's a very famous scene in Ezekiel. And uh, this illustrates very well the attitude of ancient Israel and what they thought about God. They thought that they could trick God. They thought that they could go into dark places and sacrifice to false gods and stuff like that. And God just would not see it. And you get a sense of this in David's Psalms, 139. He says that, you know, the dark is like light when you're looking at me, God. And he says that because there was the conception out there that God couldn't see in the dark. And that idea is really weird to moderns. It's weird to you and me, and it's weird to normal Christians. Because we don't think of, of darkness as something that could hinder God. But that was normal Israelite belief. So in Ezekiel 8, God brings Ezekiel to this mountain, and this mountain gets this magic door, and God commands him to go in, and inside he finds this room filled with people sacrificing to false gods. So reading the text, God says, Son of man, do you not see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here, to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will see greater abominations? And that statement there was in reference to an idol that they saw. But God goes on and he commands him to go dig that hole. And he says, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing there. So I went in, and I saw there every sort of creeping thing, and abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel, portrayed all around the walls. And there stood before them seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. And then, then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the room of his idols? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. So notice what is said here. And this is a reoccurring phrase that we find throughout the Bible that is attributed to people who do not worship Yahweh. And they say, The Lord does not see us. And this is a recurrent theme. And ancient Israelites, they believed literally that they could do stuff and God wouldn't know. This is not necessarily a rejection that Yahweh exists. Their conception of Yahweh was not one of these metaphysical principles where God is omnipresent or God is omniscient. They don't have any concept like that. They don't even believe that there's like this overriding God, this this one concept that you find in Platonism, where there's this ultimate God who's pure actuality, pure acity. That concept just does not exist. And it definitely is not attributed to Yahweh, who is seen as a God among several gods who exist who are vying for power. And the biblical claim is that not that God is this absolute one acity, but that God is unquestionably the chief of all deities he's he's the head of all angels there's no comparable gods to him and no one can rival him in power and stature and it's not this idea of this pure acity that platonism tries to impose the idea is the exact opposite to the israelites in the text their conception of yahweh was sometimes some things happen on earth 
that are not seen. And what this Ezekiel passage is doing is God is showing Ezekiel and saying, you know, I'm watching all these things. I'm watching these people do these things. And these people think that they're getting away with it. These people think that no one's going to know if they're sacrificing in dark places. But I know. And this is not making me very happy. And at the end of Ezekiel 8, God says, Therefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Because God is fuming mad about these practices in Israel. God is incredibly angry. And he's stirred to this emotional response where he anticipates them screaming out in pain, calling for deliverance, and him ignoring their pleas. That's how burning in wrath he is at these ideas in Israel, at Israel just flaunting their worship of other gods and saying that God doesn't hear them. God's just going to destroy them. And one thing I really understand from reading passages like this is that God has vindictive satisfaction sometimes when there's people who blatantly reject him and blatantly worship other gods and then they get their just up-and-comings. God is satisfied, and some passages of the Bible say God's going to satisfy his wrath. And this is one of those. And this is one of those issues, you know, the worship of false gods, the claiming that God does not see what people do. This is one of the things that really gets God angry. So Psalms 10 is a psalm that is intended to spur God to action. In the psalm, the current state of the land is that there's a bunch of wicked people oppressing the righteous. And Psalms 10 describes the attitudes of these wicked people. Psalm 10 and 11 says, He has said it in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, You will not require an account. So this was the atheistic claim. God does not see, God does not listen, God's not going to act. And that was the atheism of the day, and in, in a sense that is true. Because the author of Psalms 10 is saying, you know, God, look at these people who say these things, prove them wrong. Because right now I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing the righteous being oppressed. So you need to prove these guys wrong and act and overcome these claims against you that are really infuriating. Again, notice the claims. God doesn't see what we're doing. God's not going to require justice. God's not going to avenge the righteous. God, God's not going to act. We're just going to go on living our happy lives, and God's not going to ever intervene. And so the psalmist really wants God to come in and just kill the wicked and to act. And that's going to prove that God does see the wicked. That's going to prove that God does act and does require justice and that God is a God of justice. And that's the point of this psalm, to spur God into action. Did the psalmist think that this would happen automatically if he, if he said this psalm, if he prayed or not? No, he doesn't. This is a desperate prayer to God to stir God into action. The author of this psalm doesn't believe that God is automatically controlling everything, that God's will is being done necessarily on earth. The author believes that he could influence God, that he could get God to act, and he believes that God does see everything and that God 
has a vested interest in protecting his own namesake among the wicked and the righteous to both save the righteous and to invalidate the claims of the wicked. So in the Proverbs, you got a proverb about God watching people. And the reason why this is a proverb is because ancient Israel didn't automatically believe this and they needed some sort of saying to remind them that God is watching everyone's actions. And the proverb is Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And in a previous podcast, I talked about this eyes of the Lord, and often eyes of the Lord are used for angels. This could be a metaphor for God's just watching everyone at every place, keeping watch on the good and evil. It doesn't really matter. Not for the sake of this podcast here. But uh, keep in mind that this knowledge is still being communicated as mechanistic. God watches, thus God knows. That's, that's the Israel concept of how God acquires information. There's this watching process. It's not like in Calvinism and in Arminianism and uh, in uh, Platonism where God just has access to this instant inherent knowledge in his being. God in the Bible has to acquire information through means of acquiring information. That's just how it is presented. There's no familiarity with this instant knowledge that uh, is proclaimed by the Platonistic philosophers. So this proverb is fighting against this notion that God does not know what the good and the evil do. Notice how it's worded. It's not worded that God knows like everything, like on some remote barren island where there's no people who live or die. No, God's particularly interested in the actions of human beings. It's really funny that this verse is often used as a proof text for omniscience. Even present omniscience is a wild leap of logic from this particular text. Because this particular text is concerned about God watching the actions of people. Where there are no people, this text is not concerned about it. Also notice the very basic unfamiliarity with time travel. This is not about God seeing into the future and knowing all future actions. This is like a present acquiring of knowledge as events happen. God knows what people are doing because he has eyes there while they're doing that. So in that same vein, let's flip over to Psalms 33:13. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. And so what's presented here is this notion of a divine council. God is sitting in this heavenly courtroom, and he's peering on all of earth. And he's watching all of earth while events happen. And he's figuring out what's happening and who's doing what. And then God is acting from heaven. He's deciding things, he's shaping hearts, and he's doing things as events unfold. And this is the Hebrew concept of how Yahweh operates. Remember back to our Psalms 139 podcast, and David says, You know me from afar. And so David's concept is, again, this idea that God is in heaven, and reaching down and looking down on David, on the world, and acting from heaven. God operates from this heavenly sphere. Again, absent are themes of timelessness, absent are themes of knowledge that's inherent, that just appears in God. God has to observe the earth. 
absent are ideas of total future omniscience. God is observing the present to figure out what's happening, and then he fashions people's hearts in the moment. The Jewish authors of the Bible and their audiences were just unfamiliar with normal theological speculation that modern Christians bring to the text. They just they just don't understand it. It's not part of their vocabulary. It's not part of their thought process. And it's the furthest thing from their mind. So now we're going to flip to a text that is often used by advocates of negative theology. Malachi 3. They usually focus on Malachi 3.6, but we're going to go towards the end of the chapter. And in the end of the chapter, what's happening is there's a group of righteous people. And they're worried about the things that they are seeing. And Malachi 3.14 says, You have said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit in our keeping his charge, or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So these are the righteous talking, and they see these wicked people, and the wicked people are prospering, and God's not acting, God's not putting them down, and the righteous people are growing restless, and they're like, why? Why are we still being righteous? Why are we serving God? There's no benefit in it. All these wicked people, they're the ones prospering. You know, what assurity do we have? And so in Malachi 3.16, it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Malachi 3.17 says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And so what is happening here? All these righteous people are concerned about justice. They want the wicked punished and the righteous saved. And so what is God's solution to them? He's writing a book that lists their names to assure that when God comes and destroys the wicked, that he does not destroy the righteous along with the wicked. And who's writing this book? In the text, it looks like God's writing this book. It could be the people writing the book. It could be, you know, maybe it's a, like a metaphor for the people who are writing the book, putting it in God's name. But but why is this book being written? Because don't the people believe, these, these are the righteous people, the people that God loves, that God wants to save. Don't they believe that God has all omniscience of all past events? Just think about that. The people who are the righteous people, the people who love God, the people who God wants to save, the people who, these are the, the ones that are considered God's own people, they don't believe that God has past omniscience. They just don't believe it. And, you know, regardless if the text supports that God doesn't have past omniscience or not, that's not like a disqualifier to be a Christian or to be a server of Yahweh. Like all the Calvinists, they all claim that open theism is heresy. The righteous people in the Bible did not believe that God had past omniscience. They just didn't do it. You're not going to find an open theist who claims what the Bible depicts as normal beliefs in the righteous of Israel. You're just not going to do it. And yet the Calvinists have the gall to claim that, you know, open theism is heresy. Again, normally how the Bible is written, how it's presented, how it advocates things, 
how it deals with the atheists, the false gods, the people who are claiming to be speaking on behalf of God. It's really written how an open theist would respond to an atheist, and even how an open theist would respond to a Calvinist, because Calvinists don't think that God can do or see anything. They think that if God didn't have this total control of everything, this meticulous control, that God would be incompetent. So you really have to use the same arguments that the prophets of Israel used to Israel on behalf of Yahweh. You use those same arguments to prove that God can do things. The Calvinists, they just don't believe that. They, Calvinists believe that God is incompetent. And so you say, well, God freed them from the Pharaoh. And how he did that is he sent plagues, and he plagued him, and he, he harassed them, and, and he strong-armed him into doing that, because God is capable. God is capable. That's the argument that God can do things, not that God has this inherent uh, metaphysics, you know, that match up with all these Platonistic ideas that aren't ever really described in the Bible, but are described in depth in uh, pagan philosophy. So the last text that we're going to look at is Jeremiah 23. And in Jeremiah 23, we got all sorts of things happening. And one of the things that is happening is that these false prophets are going around in the name of Yahweh, and they're predicting things. And what are they predicting? They're the Joel Olsteins of the world. They say that life is going to be happy and grand, and everyone's going to be hunky-dory happy and prosperous and stuff like that and don't ever expect uh, a reckoning don't ever expect god to come back and judge the world god says i did not send the prophets yet they ran i did not speak to them yet they prophesied but if they had stood in my counsel notice the heavenly counsel idea again they would have proclaimed my words to my people and they would have turned them from their evil way and from their evil deeds am i a god at hand declares the lord and not a god far away and so what is god saying here He's saying that these false prophets are going around and they're proclaiming things that he did not speak to them. And he's saying, I'm a God that is accessible and there are prophets that do stand in his counsel and do listen to him and do relay his words. And then he says, can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and the earth, declares the Lord. I have heard what the prophets had said who prophesied lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies, who prophesy deceit of their own heart? So this text needs to really be read as advocacy. And it's advocacy against these false ideas that are floating around in Israel that peace and prosperity are going to reign. And uh, this depiction of God as one who's not going to come in and judge Israel for their actions, that that's a false picture. And God is really saying that you know, I see these things. He says, when these things are being declared in my name, I watch these guys do that. They're not doing it in secret, and they are going to get judgment. Verse 24 is often used for concepts of omnipresence. Do I not fill heaven and earth? And that text doesn't necessarily warrant that God's physically present at all spaces and points of time. It's probably more of like the Proverbs, that God's just watching all the actions of the good and the evil and it doesn't necessitate more than that but i understand when people are going for the omnipresence type of things but you probably want stronger proof text if that's what you're advocating but that verse counters the notion the very popular notion in israel 
that God doesn't know what people are doing, that God does not know what people are saying. And consequently, because God doesn't know what people are doing and saying, God's not going to judge people for those actions. And so this verse is proof against that. This verse is advocacy against those ideas and presenting a Yahweh, presenting a God who sees and knows what people do and takes account so that he can perform justice on earth. Like every other verse that we've covered, the responses, the arguments against these false beliefs that are floating around in Israel are not these metaphysical ramblings. They're not these Calvinist diatribes about negative attributes. Instead, they're common sense, um, they're easy to understand, and they're pretty basic theology advocating that God is going to act and God does see. And it's not this knowledge of the future, of total omniscience, of everything that's going to happen, which is driving this, but it's current knowledge. So when we read the Bible, we really need to understand what the text is trying to do. And the Bible is a strong form of advocacy. And it's advocating a true God over the false gods. And so we can't just discount the text and say the text doesn't describe God as God truly is because we got some sort of metaphysical notions that we grabbed from Plato and Plotinus. You know, we can't just discount the text because the text is written specifically to advocate for the true God over the false gods. So claiming that it doesn't actually advocate the true God is not a very good way to approach this text. We need to watch what the critics say, how the critics are countered, and what's the theological views of ancient Israel that are in circulation. Because if the modern ideas, if the modern Christian ideas are not kosher in ancient Israel and there's nothing explaining that anywhere and no one understands or believes them, we have zero reason to believe that we need to take all these Old Testament texts in light of this theology that wasn't even an option, wasn't understood, and wasn't described by the text. That's all we have time for today. Feel free to leave questions and comments on the God is Open webpage or our companion God is Open Facebook group. Thank you for listening.